We're going to continue in uh, what really is this unintended series of loneliness. Uh, Sean started this, uh, uh, he preached on this last week. Uh, he spoke about the fact that loneliness is one of the most pervasive diseases that our society has encountered this day. Um, the statistics that he shared with us were pretty grim and pretty frightening, and it should, um, it should scare us. It, the, the impacts of this are far-reaching for us, both as individuals and as a society. And as Sean was preaching, he listed off a bunch of statistics that should be quite frightening. Um, one that stuck out the most to me is this, that out of 2,000 people that were surveyed, 25% of those that were surveyed in the United States stated that they don't have a single person in their life to confide in. Not a single one. They don't have a single person that they feel comfortable enough to share with what's going on in their life. So if we were painting with a broad brush in this room, that's about 25 of us in this room, don't feel like we have one person that we could confide in. Think about that. That's scary. So if you missed that last week, Sean um, shared a lot with us. He talked about this, but he did also remind us encourage and encourage us that it does not have to be this way. He reminded us, the church, of the hope that we have. Not only the hope that we have in the church and those that we call family here at Providence North, but also brothers and sisters in Christ all throughout our community. But more importantly, he reminded us of the hope that we have and the fact that we're never alone because of the promises of the gospel. We sang a song last week called Another in the Fire. It's an incredible song, but we know through the words of this song, we proclaim that we are never alone. There is always another with us. Jesus is always with us. Why is that? Why is it that we can have peace knowing that we're never alone? It's because of the grace and mercy of God and through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The gospel says that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment of our sin. He rose again from the grave to make us into a new creation, to make us into a new life. He ascended into heaven while giving us a helper through the Holy Spirit, whom he says will never leave us. So church, we can stand firm on the promise that we are never alone and we never will be again. Now, this promise is true. It's something that we can stand firm in, but we also need to understand that one of the most important factors when it comes to any given relationship, whether it's with our spouses, our children, or our friends, or even with God, is that relationships are a two-way street, aren't they? The experience or benefit of being in relationship with God or with one another is directly correlated with what we invest into them. Let me say that again. Our relational experience with God or with one another is directly correlated to how much we invest into those relationships. But relational equity with one another doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't happen through social media posts. It doesn't happen through likes or comments, whatever you want to do. It happens in the day-to-day -day hard work of communicating with and investing into one another. And I believe that we're only able to invest into one another on a deep gospel level through an overflow of our relationship with God. That's the only way that we can do this with one another. And so today, for what I'd like for us to do is I want us to allow the scriptures to illuminate us. I want it to illuminate for us, to teach us, to show us how we are to commune with God and basically how we're to be in relationship with Him. I want us to see how King David and Jesus view their relationship with God. I want us to see how they rely on Him, how they intimately confide in Him, how they expectantly await His response and His presence in their lives. 
And after that, I want us to take some time to do the same thing. And so basically at the end of the service, we're going to take some time to pray today. And we're, we're going to take some time to just be with the Father. Now before we get into that word, I want to start off by saying that I believe most people can say that they fall into two extreme camps when it comes to their prayer life or relationship with God. We find a lot of us are kind of in the middle, but I want to share these two camps that I think a lot of people might find themselves in. First, there's those that don't pray. Generally speaking, there's many that can say that they are living a life of prayerlessness. They may know God, they may trust in God, but somehow they feel like God is so far off and he's not interested at all in what they have to say. They don't believe that he has the time for their insignificant problems because he's off fixing the world. And so with that mindset, many of those people, they just don't go to him, and so they don't pray, which means that they're typically trying to figure it out on their own and do life on their own. Rather than going to God, they become prayerless. This morning, would you consider yourself in that camp? Are there times in your life where you find yourself in that category? On the other extreme, there are some Christians who pray a lot, but they do it with a certain kind of approach that's typically not in line with the heartbeat or the word of God. It's almost as if they're praying with an angle. Here's what I mean by that. I, it's like they think God is some sort of genie, some genie in a bottle, and if you say exactly the right words with the right tone of voice and you say it in such a way, you can almost paint God into a corner so that he has to answer you favorably. It's almost like you're wanting him to give you your wishes, to grant your wishes. It reminds me of one of my favorite music artists. He used to say this all the time. Anyone in here remember Run DMC? Run DMC, okay, maybe one person, Jeff, thank you. Uh, Run DMC, incredible hip-hop group, one of the first hip-hop artists out there. Uh, and one of the people in their group, his name was Rev Run. Reverend Run was his name, right? And so Rev Run, he, he grew up, he got a family, and he got his own reality TV show on MTV. And he used to say this to his kids all the time. And his kids had everything, right? They had everything they could ever want. And they're always asking for more and asking these. They're praying with each other on MTV, which is really cool. Um, but uh, Rev Run tells his kids, he said, hey, kids, don't play God like a genie saying, gimme, 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 gimme. He said it all the time to them. Now, at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about when he was saying this because I wasn't a believer. But praise God, I can understand that today through the scriptures. It even points this out to us in James chapter 4. We see James address these two camps that I talked about, a life of prayerlessness and then a life of praying with almost a certain manipulation attached to it. James chapter 4 says this, verse 2. You desire and do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James is talking about prayerlessness right here. You don't have because you don't ask. And so you try to do life on your own instead of relying on God. And when you let that go to the extreme, here's what happens. The text says you fight, you quarrel, and even further it says you murder. Now, on the other side, you see manipulation. In the next verse, very next verse, James 4, ch chapter 4, verse 3, he says this. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You're asking with the wrong motivation to just spend it on yourself. You're asking selfishly. You're not asking for God's will to be done. You're trying to manipulate God into doing your will. You're just trying to play God like a genie, saying, give me, give me, give me. So how do we avoid these two camps? How do we avoid these two extremes? Because the truth is, is God wants us to come to him, doesn't he? He wants us to come to him with things that are going on in our life 
whether we believe that they're small or big. But he wants us to come in the right way. He wants us to come with the right heart. So how do we avoid that? How do we go to stay away from those two extremes? Well, David, King David, gives us a great model. So we're going to be in Psalm 86 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. If you don't, have your phones on your, your Bible on your phone. The, uh, the screens behind me will have the verses. So we're going to be in Psalm 86 this morning, starting in verse 1 and ending in verse 10. And as I'm reading this, I want to encourage you to think about this as almost as if this is you praying these exact words to God. These are your words to God this morning. All right? This is King David. Verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me, Lord. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations have made, you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And this is God's word. Now remember, the goal this morning is to understand how David approaches the God of heaven so that we too can learn how to be in a deeper, more intimate relationship with our creator. So that we in turn can be on more deeper, intimate, gospel level relationships with one another. You see, the deepest desire of our souls as followers of Jesus is to be in relationship with God. And so how do we do that? Well, right away, David gives us our first point. David says, we need to approach God with the understanding and truth that we are helpless. We're needy. We're poor. Verse 1 says this, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Get helpless, David says. That's how David feels. That's how we need to feel if we're going to go to God. It demonstrates this true recognition of our position compared to his. And the reason this is so important is because if you can help yourself, why would you ever need to go to God? If you could do everything yourself, solve everything yourself, accomplish everything yourself, then why would you ever need to pray? David knows that he's helpless. David, one of the greatest kings to ever reign in Israel, admits that he's what? Poor and needy. And the reality of this text and what needs to hit home for us is that we are all poor and needy all the time. There is not one time in our lives that we are not in a place of need when it comes to God and what he can provide. Let's think about it another way. When Jesus was teaching us how to come to God, he said what? Come like little kids. Come to God like little kids. And how do little kids come to their parents? Helpless, needy, desperate, asking again and again and again and again. Completely relying on what mom and dad or whoever is caring for them has to offer. They have no ability to solve the problems for themselves. They come to you with everything they got because they know you're the only one that can fix what's going on. And that's how God wants us to come to him. 
When we look at the parables Jesus shared, there's two that really speak out to the compassion and kindness of God when it comes to the needy and the helpless and those that seek his love. One of them is the story that Jesus told about a guy with his long-lost friend. This long-lost friend comes to his house in the middle of the night after a really long journey. His friend is absolutely starving when he gets there. But his friend has this guy, he has no food in his house for his friend. So he goes to his neighbor's house. And he starts banging on the door at midnight. He's got no ability to get food for, at that hour. His friend is starving. He needs help. He's desperate. This is his last option. This is his last hope to feed his friend. Well, this is how Jesus says we need to come to God. Just like this guy at midnight. Just as helpless and desperate as this guy. Helpless and desperate. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about going to God in such a way that you are admitting you are completely helpless? I don't like it. Personally, when I see that in the scriptures and I hear that myself, I don't like it. I don't like it because I don't want to be helpless. Again, personally, I don't want to be in that position. I don't want to be helpless because I want to be in control. I want to have a plan. I want to have the options. I want to have the ability to carry it out the way that I think is best. But if you could guess one thing that God has used in my life to make me feel more helpless and more desperate than anything else, what do you think that would be? Kids. Children. Am I right? If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or even if you're just responsible for the lives and well-being of small children for any part of the day, you know what I'm talking about here. This feeling of helplessness and desperation it hit Danielle and I just four hours after our son was born. After a picture-perfect pregnancy with zero trouble, zero sickness, after a smooth, non-medicated delivery, after doctors giving us the green light, all was okay. They left the room for us to enjoy our son. But just four hours later, Keller started breathing kind of funny. And so I called the nurses back in, and not knowing what was going on, it's my first son, I'm just like, oh my gosh, what's happening? They take him into the NICU. And they do some routine testing, and they pull his blood, and they find out that he's actually contracted a pretty serious bacteria. And if not treated, or if it progresses, it actually leads to spinal meningitis, which is a 50% survival rate in children that are that young. And so there it were. Four hours after we were born, found myself completely helpless. So what did we do? We prayed. I prayed like I never prayed before. I prayed with a desperation and a need that I had never felt before. I'll never forget those first 10 days at Keller's the NICU. I'll never forget the intimacy that I had with God during those first 10 days. Now that time was scary. It was life-giving. But generally speaking, it takes me way too long to get to that point in my relationship with God with my day-to-day -day interactions. All too often, I spend the majority of my, my time trying to figure stuff out on my own before I say, oh, maybe I should go pray about that. You see, it takes me way too long to get helpless. But this is how David starts out right away in verse 1. God, I am poor. I am needy. I am desperate. I am helpless. That's where David starts, and so that's where we need to start. Next, David shows us that when we go to God, we need to recognize and praise Him for the grace that He's shown us in our lives. And when that happens... When we recognize his grace, it gives us the ability to pray for whatever's on our hearts. Look how David continues in verse 3. 
He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day. And then again in verse 6, David says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. So what is grace? Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. It's a gift that we could never earn. And David is modeling for us that he knows God owes him nothing. And so he's asking for help. He's asking for help out of God's kindness, his compassion, not from a place of assumption or entitlement or manipulation. And so when we pray, we also need to pray with the understanding that God wants to lavish his grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. But this too can be hard. Again, I think we have a hard time approaching God in prayer and being in relationship with him because we don't think we're worthy to be listened to. We listen to the enemy, don't we? We allow the enemy to creep in. Shame, doubt, sin creeps in, and so we wait. We wait until we think we've got it figured out, until we think that we can go to him when we're holy enough to be heard. And oftentimes that never happens, and so we go without praying. But this isn't how David approaches God. Remember, for as great as a leader David was for Israel, he had a ton of mistakes. He had some deep-rooted sins in his life, didn't he? Pride being probably the most prominent one. But that didn't stop him from recognizing God's grace in his life, God's provision, God's guidance, God's love, his compassion, his kindness. So he's asking the Lord for a gift here. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Which in turn allows David to ask for what's on his heart. You see, David feels the freedom to pray for what's bothering him the most. In fact, we get the sense that perhaps David feels such intimacy with God that God may be the only one that he's confiding in about these things. Look what he says in verse 2. He says, preserve my life, Lord. Save your servant, Lord. David is praying for what's on his heart, and he's being direct about it. Preserve my life, Lord. We actually see the same thing from Jesus in the book of Mark. When Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his arrest, he tells his disciples to stand watch while he prays because his soul is sorrowful, even to the point of death. He then goes and lies down on his face and he prays this, Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, Jesus says. What's interesting about this, and it actually helps demonstrate the previous point I made earlier about approaching God like a child in need, is the unusual way that Jesus addresses God by using the name Abba. Abba is this Aramaic word that expresses this deep and intimate relationship. It's a word used by a completely trusting and dependent child whose life is solely and completely secure in the loving arms of a father. This would have been scandalous to say in the Old Testament. Nowhere before the New Testament was Abba used to address God. And so Jesus says, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. It can also be said like this, Dearest Father, or how my kids generally address me in a time of need, they tend to say, Dada. Dada. Jesus says, Dada, I'm helpless here. My soul is sorrowful to the point of death. I see no other way. Please let this cup pass for me, this cup full of pain, this cup full of torture, this cup full of mockery, this cup full of wrath. I don't want to drink this cup tomorrow, Father. Is there any other way, Dad? 
And he repeats this prayer several times throughout the night. But again, what Jesus is modeling for us is how we approach the Father. Helpless, desperate, grateful for his grace, fully trusting and wholly resting in his loving arms, praying for whatever is on our hearts. When Keller was sick in the NICU, especially during those first 40 hours, we weren't just sort of randomly praying. No, we were praying for exactly what was on our hearts. We were asking God and others, we were asking others to ask God to heal him. We are saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Dada, we are helpless now. We are desperate for you. We are trusting and fully dependent on you. We confidently rest securely in your loving arms, knowing that you can heal our son. So please, Dada, would you heal Kevin? Please, Father, would you completely remove this bacteria from him? Please, Daddy, let Keller be okay. We had the freedom to pray for what was on our hearts because we trusted in the Father's grace. David and Jesus show us the exact same thing. We trust in his grace and we can pray for whatever's on our hearts. Lastly, when we pray, expect it, we pray expectantly for God to answer. We expect God to answer our prayers. And David models this for us. He says in verse 7, In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. I know you're going to answer me, Lord, David says. You know, one of the reasons I think that we have a hard time praying is because we're not truly expecting God to answer our prayers. Perhaps this is you. You've tried praying in the past for something big. Maybe God didn't answer you the way that you thought it was supposed to be. And so you kind of, kind of gave up on the whole thing. And so you almost lived this life with an attitude that if I don't expect anything, if I don't expect much, then when I do get something, it's a pleasant surprise. You set the bar so low that you don't even feel a need to pray. Honestly, I just think this is a defense mechanism for most of us if this is you. You're just trying to protect yourself. You're trying to control the situation so that you don't ever have to feel let down. Or, I know this to be true about myself, there's something that's troubling me, and so I'll go to God in prayer, and guess what? God answers. He answers exactly the way I wanted him to. The thing that I desire the most, he answers that prayer. But due to the busyness of my life, I fail to look back and praise him for his answer, and then guess what? Even worse, I take the credit. Look what I did. Either way, neither one of these attitudes are truly displaying faith in God. It's especially not the kind of attitude that David's displaying. David says in verse 7, I know you're going to answer me, Lord. And he says this in verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. David's saying, Abba, Father, I'm helpless and needy without you. I'm placing myself and my trust into your loving, compassionate arms. I'm sharing with you all that is on my heart. I trust that you will answer me, for you are the great I am. You alone are God. I trust that you're going to answer me. Jesus actually says something about this as well. Jesus promises us that we will get an answer. This is a shocking statement in John 14, 13. Look what Jesus says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And why does he do that? Why does he say so? So that he, he goes on, he says, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And Jesus is so adamant about this that he repeats himself in the next verse and even four more times in chapter 15 of John. He says it over and over and over again because Jesus knows that we struggle to believe that. He knows that in our heart of hearts, we struggle believing that God is as generous as he says he is. And that's why he adds those words in my name. These words aren't some sort of magic phrase. It's not some sort of potion that you concoct up and you're going to get whatever you want so that God answers you the way that you want. No, these words are a promise that God's going to answer you. It means that you're not going to God by yourself. No, it means that you're approaching the throne room of God, communicating to God with Jesus' name attached to you. It's a promise that God will answer. But first, we have to remember why. Why would we even have Jesus' name attached to us, and why are we given that promise in the first place? The only way you have the ability to have the name attached to you is by believing this. Jesus lived the perfect life that you can't live. He died on the cross to take your sin. He then rose from the grave to make you into a new creation and to give you a new life. He then ascended into heaven to become your advocate at the right-hand throne of the Father, interceding on your behalf, reminding God of your belief and your need. He sent the Spirit to comfort you and to guide you and to convict you and to help you. And one day, He's coming back to be the King of the world. That's why you have that name attached to you. By believing in that. That's how you got that name. That's exactly why you can now approach God like a helpless and desperate child in need. But you aren't just coming to some distant stranger in a far-off land. You're going to Abba Father. You're going to Dada. And His loving and comforting arms are wide open waiting for you. This is where you find rest and peace so that you can share everything that's on your heart. He wants to hear from you now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to make yourself look pretty. He loves you exactly the way you are because He created you. He wants to hear from you. And He promises that He's going to answer you. He's given you that promise and you can trust it. But His answers look different. They look different for everyone at different times. You know, sometimes his answers come in the form of peace and reassurance. Peace and reassurance that you're on the right path. Sometimes he answers you with guidance on how to move forward. Sometimes you feel his conviction and, and a need to address that something's going on in your life. Sometimes he reminds you of his promises through his word. And lastly, but most importantly, God answers you with the most sweetest and wonderful gift of all. He answers us with his presence. A gift that says you're never alone. Thank God for answers. We're going to move into this next portion of the service this morning. I want us to pray. You know, oftentimes, I, I don't know how often you actually think about throughout the week actually going to the Father, setting aside some not, uh, setting some time aside, thank you, for getting to the point where you need to pray, getting to that point of helplessness. And I'm not talking about just those drive-by prayers where you're just like, all right, God, this is what I need, peace, I'm out, right? I'm talking about actually spending some time with the Lord. So this morning we have some time. Um, 
we're going to do that. We're going to do that together as a, as, as a family. And so I want you over these next, this next 10 seconds, think about this. Where is it you are most comfortable? Find a place in this room. It could be in the back of the room. It could be on your knees. It could be on your face like Jesus was in the garden. Wherever it is that's most comfortable for you, I want you to find that place. And I'm going to invite the band back up, and um, we're going to spend some time praying.